0: are now listening to the February 3rd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have Let's Read the Bible, a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller, and Respectable Sins. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible.
1: Hello Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries listeners, this is Justin Kong with Let's Read the Bible. There are a lot of people who are seriously into food, don't you think? Some people will drive a long distance if they hear about places with famous and popular dishes, and would happily wait a few hours to enjoy such food. Special dishes are foods that are unique to a particular culture, or maybe foods that are eaten only on special occasions. Having such special dishes that are unique and tasty is often called a special treat. These foods are often eaten at special occasions like birthdays or anniversaries and make the occasion even more memorable because both the food and the celebration is a time of happiness. The description of special treat appears in Proverbs chapter 18. How is the phrase special treat used in the proverb that is used to describe special dishes? Here's Proverbs chapter eighteen verse eight. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Oh no, that is not what you might have expected, right? Special treats are described as delicious morsels here, but they mean the same thing and you must have imagined having special dishes. It says the feeling we have when we talk about other people is like when we have special treats, and it is way off from what we have expected. Especially when it refers to a whisperer. A whisperer is someone who talks about others behind their back. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8 is not referring to them in a positive way. In a different version of the korean bible, it is translated as snitching on others is like delicious food and goes deep inside the stomach. Another version says words of those who criticize others maliciously is like delicious food, they go deep inside their stomach. Yet in another version it says words of those who spread bad rumors are like delicious food, people like to swallow only those words. So gossiping about others, criticizing others maliciously, and snitching on others are not good things, some people love to do so because they are like a special treat to them. In one research study, it was found that people who meet for the first time become closer much faster when they engage in gossip or slander. But Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8 tells us that talking about other people in such ways is like having special treats and they go deep inside the stomach. This means that talking about others in these ways permeate deep into their souls and affect them very negatively. When we gossip about other people, it can not only hurt their reputation, but also the words penetrate deeply inside a person's soul. They also affect us very negatively and disregards the fact that they are human who were made in God's image and belittles them. Then these words become like poisonous food that ruins our bodies and not special treats. They will make our bodies sick instead of making our bodies strong when consumed. Once we realize this, we must resist such words and stop having such special treats that make our souls sick. Proverbs chapter 18 that we are going to read today talks a lot about people with foolish lips, mouths of foolish people, and those who like to use their tongues maliciously, and about the words that are in our mouths. Let's meditate on Proverbs chapter 18 and check our speech and how we talk about others. Let's read Proverbs chapter 18 verses 1 to 24 together. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisper are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ears of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. The law puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. From the fruit of a man's mouth his stomach is satisfied, he is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor use in trees, but the rich answer roughly. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We just read Proverbs chapter 18, verses 1-24 together.
2: Oh
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Gospel in Life. Today's topic is A World of Idols. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy.
3: Acts 17, 16 to 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began a dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is God's word. Now, in our series here that we've been doing in the morning on the church, last week We came to talk about how the gospel, the essential message of Jesus Christ, changes us on the inside, how it revolutionizes us on the inside. And if we end there, I think modern people can really get into that. They say, that's great. Uh, Surely you notice that uh, newspaper articles are telling you that the supposedly secular city is filled with people who want to be spiritual. Spirituality is a big thing. When I listen to people talk about it, from what I can tell, it goes like this. By spirituality, they mean I want an inward center. I want an inward peace. I want to be suffused with a sense of meaning in the sacred. I need that inward strength so that I can reach my goals, so that I can follow my agenda. Now, the problem is that Christianity doesn't actually fit into that model. And we mustn't listen to the Christian message in a way that, it, that tries to work it in. It doesn't fit in that model. Because Christianity, though, on the one hand, is definitely inward transformation. It's a whole new agenda. It's not a way of helping you get to your agenda. It's a whole new agenda. Put it this way. I think most people think of religion like uh, this illustration. Most people think of religion like this. Imagine you're in a room. It's a party. There's 20 people at the party, and you're supposed to get out there and mix, and you just don't have it. You don't have the energy. You don't have the desire. You don't have the the love. You don't have the confidence. And so you say, how am I going to do that? And God comes up, and he touches you. And now you go out into the party. Now you can meet people. Now you have joy. Now you have uh, energy, you see. Now you're ready to mix and do the things you want to do. That's not how Christianity understands what the touch of God means. Christianity would say, yeah, you're at a party, and you look out there, there's 20 people, and you're sitting here, and you're real upset because you just don't have what it takes uh, and God comes up and touches you and you feel inwardly renewed, but when you look out there now you see 80 people. 60 people who were invisible now are visible. And you see in the, uh, the former approach, the difference between a person who's been touched by God and a person who is not touched by God, the person who's touched by God is out there meeting people and the person who's not touched by God is sort of sitting there, needs inward strength. But Christianity would say you don't just get it when God touches you a uh, kind of inward strength, but you get a whole new way of seeing everything, everything. You can't listen to music the way you did before. You can't relate to other cultures the way you did before. You can't look at yourself the way you did before, but you can't relate to other people the way you did before. You relate to your government different. You relate to your neighborhood different. You relate to your job different. Everything changes. Christianity does not just inwardly change you, but it transforms not just inside, but it transforms the way in which you relate to every part of the world. Now, to understand that is important for everybody here. What does it mean that Christianity transforms absolutely everything about my life? Modern people think religion is for the private world. Christianity says when you're touched by God, it's deeply personal, but it's not at all private. It changes everything. So if you're a Christian, you need to know that. Now, if you're not sure you're a Christian or you're sure you're not a Christian, here's my suggestion to you. Please listen. It's very important, and here's why. The vast majority of people who don't believe in Christianity have radically inaccurate ideas of what Christianity is. The vast majority of people who say, I've had it with Christianity, I'm not interested, or I'm just indifferent to Christianity, they don't know what they're indifferent to. And what that means is, that's very dangerous. It means you don't know what you're rejecting. Now the best way to understand how Christianity doesn't just change you on the inside, but changes your relationship with everything in the world, is by looking how Paul reacts in this very famous place and time. St. Paul, let's just take a look under these headings, where he went, how he felt, what he saw, and what he did. First of all, where he went. In verse 17, he went not just to the place where people were worshiping, but he went into the marketplace day by day. Ah, what do we mean? Well, you know, one of the problems we have here is this word marketplace is just not going to evoke the reality because we don't have such a thing anymore. Uh, What do we know about that? First of all, you have to remember this. Athens was the cultural capital of the world at that time. Yes, it wasn't the power capital anymore because Rome had uh, taken over Greece, but it was still the intellectual capital, it was still the cultural capital. And in the midst of Athens, there was the marketplace, the Agora. And one commentator puts it this way, on or just off the marketplace, were temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. Now, who was there? Everybody. And it's because there was no technology, really, everybody was there. You had the town officials and judges deliberating. You had artists creating. You had the stock market right there. Businessmen and businessmen, I guess, uh, were making all their deals. You had the media because you didn't have newspapers, and therefore you had to go face to face and listen to the heralds. You had the philosophers debating. Why? You didn't have journals. You know, you couldn't work out your particular field of thought through journals, debating back and forth. You had to go to the marketplace. You had to have face to face debates. Everything happened in the marketplace. We have nothing like it anymore. And therefore, this was the public space. This was a place you shopped for everything. And Paul goes there with his faith. Paul goes there. Now, this doesn't make sense to a modern people because our idea is religion is something, your faith is something for your private world. It's something that keeps you happy and gives you inward peace, but you do not bring it to the marketplace. Now, of course, that's not at all what the Bible does. That's not what the Bible says at all. Back in Proverbs chapter 1, what do we read? God says, wisdom cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance to the city gates, she makes her speech. Now, you see, why? The reason that this was a shock, and it's a shock today, is because we're pagans again. See, paganism says everybody's got their own little territorial god. You know, there's a god of Ephesus, there's a god of Athens, there's a god for business people, there's a god for fishermen, there's, everybody's got their own god. And because everybody's got their own god... That's fine, but you don't tell somebody, you know, the God, if you're worshiping the God of the fisherman, you don't go and tell the the businessman how to live. And therefore everybody's got their own God, and that's how we see it again today. But if there's a God who's not the emanation of some aspect of creation, if there's a God who is the creator of everything, then that God would have to be Lord over every area, including the marketplace. You, You couldn't keep this God in a private place. And so Paul moves on out with his faith into the marketplace, into the world of ideas, into the public realm. He raises his voice. He talks every day, day by day. In other words, he says, shoppers. (laughs) In a place where people shop for everything, says shoppers, this is the way. Turn away from the empty. Turn away from the ephemeral. Turn away from the superficial. Turn away from the partial. Turn to the substantial. Turn to the permanent. Shoppers, this is the way. And therefore, he was lifting up Christianity in the public place. Now, that's the first point. Your faith is for every part of your life. It's for the way you work. It's for the way you relate to other cultures. It's the way you participate and get enriched through art, the way you watch a movie. It's part of everything. Now, let's move on. You're going to say, well, how do I work that out? But let's just, for a second, let me just remind you this first point, and that is that that's the way to do it. Um, Put it this way. Somebody's going to say, and I you know, I thought about this, I said, well, the trouble is Paul is a preacher. And so when Paul takes the faith into the marketplace, we see what he's doing here. But how does that help me? I'm not a preacher. And I, that is a problem. Let me give you another example, though, just to show you that the principle, though it has to be worked out in everybody's particulars, the principle is the same. In 2 Kings chapter 5, there's this great story of Naaman, who was the military prime minister of Syria, and he was a pagan but he was also a leper. And he comes to Israel, and he finds healing through the God of Israel and through the prophet Elisha. And then we get to the place where he says to Elisha, now I know there is no God except in Israel. And then what happens? Now, what's he going to do? He's discovered the true God, and he's received his healing, both on the outside, really, and on the inside. Now, what is he going to do? Now, there's two things Naaman does not do. And you can go back and read them, and and what he does do, and I'm going to tell you, but it's worth pondering. And the reason it's so shocking is because virtually none of us get this balance down. The first thing he doesn't do is he he doesn't say, Elisha, let me stay here. There's nothing but dirty pagans back there, idolaters. And he says, you know what my job is? As the military prime minister, every week I have to go with the king. The king is on my arm and I have to go into the temple of Rimon. And there the king bows down and I bow down. I can't do anything like that. I can never set foot in that temple anymore. I know the true God. Therefore, can I stay here with just believers? He doesn't do that. Nor on the other side does he say, well, you know what? No problem, I now have my healing. God has touched me and it won't make any difference. I'll go back, I'll do my job. There won't be any difference. I can keep it to myself. There's no reason to rock the boat. He doesn't do that either. He neither avoids his culture nor capitulates to his culture. He neither runs away from his culture, nor does he privatize his faith away from his culture. You know what he says? He says to Elisha, the prophet, he says, May the Lord forgive me when my master, the king, goes into the temple of Rimon to bow down and is leaning on my arm, and I bow there also. May the Lord forgive me. Here's what I will do. Give me enough dirt as two mules can carry so that your servant will never make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. I love this because it's so absolutely particular that nobody can dare copy it. You're just going to have to go to the principles. It's it's so easy to be wooden when it comes to the Bible and and miss the principle. Here's what he's saying. He is saying, I am going to do my job. I'm the prime minister and that's part of my job. But when I go in there, I'm going to have some dirt from Israel and my servants are going to spread it and I'm going to kneel down so that everyone who sees knows that I am sacrificing to the God of Israel. Now, somebody would say, oh, is that superstition? No, 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 no. The dirt is not superstition. It's witness. It's a symbol. It's a witness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to do my job, but I'm going to let everyone know, and that's my way of showing people. People are going to ask me about it. I'm going to tell them that I don't serve the way I used to serve. Everything I'm doing, I'm doing out of honor for the true God. He neither privatizes his faith, nor does he run away and stay away. He doesn't run from his culture, and he doesn't capitulate to his culture he took his faith into his public life now somebody's going to say oh see nobody's going to do that you're going to have to work it out yourself that was his way paul's doing his way you have to do your way i don't know why in the world people say oh yeah you're christians you believe the bible you like pat answers pat answers the bible doesn't give you pat answers bible creates problems for you don't you feel it if you take the bible seriously you say oh my gosh I now see what I've got to do, but I'm going to have to work it out. I'm going to have to be creative. I'm going to have to have wisdom. It's going to take me all of my life to figure out how to do this. Pat answers. I'll tell you what a pat answer is. A pat answer is to say, there's no truth. There's no truth. So basically, whatever feels good, you can just sort of go with the flow. That's a pat answer. That takes no creativity. That takes no innovation. Another kind of pat answer, of course, is on the other side and saying, if you want to witness. In your public life, here's exactly what you do. Every one of you, 2,000 of you, take these, these five things. That's the other pat answer. Bible doesn't do either. Paul goes into the marketplace. That's where he goes. Now, somebody's going to say, okay, tell me, how do I do this? And the answer is there's three, but they're mainly principles. Here's what you get. First of all, look what Paul felt. He was greatly distressed. Now, the first thing I'm going to tell you by way of practical application is this. The Bible... In general, when you ask the Bible for guidance, when you say, I need guidance, I need to make this and that decision, I need to know whether I should go to school or not go to school, I need to know whether I should marry this person or not marry this person, I need guidance, how do I do it? And in general, the Bible does not tell you how to get God's guidance, it tells you the kind of person that discerns the will of God. Now, we don't like this, we're very Western. You say, how can I face death? How can I face suffering? How can I have the wisdom How can I understand these things? And the Bible continually says, here's the kind of character, here's the kind of heart, here's the kind of person that works through these things. And you say, but I need this tomorrow. I says, wait a minute, the kind of person, character, you're talking about reflection, you're talking about prayer, you're talking about habits of heart, you're talking about time. And I need this tomorrow. How Western. How sad. So let's get started. It probably means that you won't be ready for tomorrow. But if you don't get started now, you won't be ready for next year or the year after that or the year after that. And most of you are young. Now look, the first thing we learn here is Paul had deeply complex feelings. John Stott, a commentator on the book of Acts, in this passage, he says, the reason we can't speak the way Paul speaks is because we can't see the way Paul sees. And the reason we can't see the way Paul sees is because we don't feel what Paul feels. The first principle is you must have the feelings Paul had if you're gonna be effective in the marketplace. Now, the, the trouble with this word, it's a word that is kind of hard to translate. You'll find, if you do a careful study, that this word tends to be associated in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, with places where it talks about how God feels when he sees people worshiping idols. But when God says this provokes me, this uh, you know, when He talks about His feelings, He says, He says the reason I am so provoked, the reason I am so filled, I'm so distressed, is because I'm a jealous God. Now, people really react to the places in the Bible where it says God is jealous because when we think of jealousy, we think of the kind of selfish jealousy, we think of the proud jealousy that says, I don't like you because you've got something I want. But there's a healthy jealousy, there's a pure jealousy. There really is. In fact. The biblical word for jealousy, the idea of a jealous God, I think we know it, but it is so profound because it shows us that love is not just sweet feelings, but thunderous feelings. If you love somebody and you see them ruining their life, or if you love somebody and you see somebody wooing them in the wrong direction, you don't just say, oh, you get mad. Listen, the opposite of love it's not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. And anybody who's ever been deeply in love, just filled with love for somebody or something, knows that there's a sweetness, you're melted, you're filled with compassion, and you're filled with indignation all the time. If you've loved children, if you've loved a spouse, if you've loved parents, it's both. And you see, the reason that God says, I am continually provoked in my heart when I see you worshiping idols that's because that's the complexity of love. On the one hand, he's outraged at the dishonor. But on the other hand, jealousy means, I love you. And when Paul was filled with great... See, this, this is all in this word, greatly distressed. Paul has a deeply, deeply complex and very strong mixture of both indignation and compassion. And it's both, it's both, it's both. See, on the one hand, you can see the compassion... Because what did he do out there in the marketplace? Did he get up? Did he say, you dirty idolaters? It says he reasoned. He dialogued. So there's compassion. There was gentleness. But there's also indignation. And here's why Paul was effective. If you're not filled with indignation, you will not have the courage to do what he did. And if you are only filled with indignation, you won't have the gentleness. You won't be able to give people the impression that you care about them. You won't be able to get into their questions. You won't be able to understand them. They won't feel respected they'll turn you right off. Do you remember the place in John chapter 11 where Jesus comes to Mary and Martha whose brother Lazarus just died? One of the most astounding insights is, that I got when I uh, listened to a tape on this once, was that Jesus walks up to Mary and Mary says, if you had been here, he'd be alive. And he wept. That's all Jesus did, he just wept. And Martha comes up to him and says the same thing. If you had been here, my brother, he'd be alive. And Jesus says, I am the life. In one case, he's filled with tears. In the other case, he gives a stern lecture. And here's why. Jesus Christ is a man just as much made of truth as of tears. And that's not true of the rest of us. We've all got our temperaments. Some of us are full of sweetness and some of us are full of thunder, but nobody does them both good. Some of us are great at the ministry of tears. Some of us are great at the ministry of truth. And here's what I want you to know. That if you are only one or the other, if you're only indignant or compassionate, you won't change anybody's life and you'll go out in the marketplace and you'll be utterly ineffective. Oh, What's the solution? Let me just say something to both Christians and to people who are not sure where they stand. First of all, Christians, I want you to know something. If you go by your natural proclivity, if you follow your natural temperament here, you'll be ineffective and you won't make good choices in the marketplace. You know, 98% of everything we say publicly are either obnoxious or cowardly. And Paul was neither, because he was filled with holy, loving jealousy. And we're not. We're either too afraid to open our mouths, we're too cowardly, or else, when we do, we're obnoxious. We're filled with either indignation or compassion. He said, well, how in the world do we overcome that? And the answer is this. Paul said to the Corinthians, when I first came to you, he said, I was filled with fear and trembling, Then he says, and I resolved to know nothing but Christ and him crucified when I was among you. Paul looked at the cross. He burned it into his heart. Now somebody says, why? What does that mean? I'll tell you why. The cross is the only spot in any religion that shows us on the one hand a God so utterly and completely and relentlessly and absolutely and infallibly holy that he has to pour out wrath and divine justice on evil and sin. And at the very same time, the cross shows us a God who is so absolutely and completely and utterly and relentlessly and perfectly and infallibly loving that he'd do it on his own son rather than lose us. And if you don't have a cross in your understanding, if you say, well, I don't understand the cross or I don't believe in the cross, if you don't have a cross in your religion, you will either have a moralistic religion or a relativistic religion. You will either have a God who's very demanding. And is, and that's it, you know, live up or at, or else, or you'll have a God who's so completely accepting, but whose love for us cost him not a thing. And moralistic or relativistic view of God, thunder religion or sweetheart religion, never has changed anybody. Never. Only the cross, only the gospel that Jesus Christ had to die. God's that holy. Christ had to die. He's that loving. And when that is burned into Paul's heart, it turns them into the thing that basically we're not. Now you say, "I thought you were going to tell me how." No." I said, sometimes we're so practical or impractical." The Bible says, this is the kind of person who will make smart decisions out there. A person filled with holy jealousy, loving zeal, somebody who thinks so highly of God and so highly of people, that he wants them in each other's arms. And he's outraged, and he is broken-hearted till he sees it that's what you've got to do. Now, I said, I want to say something here to people who aren't sure you believe. Here's what I want you to think of. Surely you've been turned off by Christians who are clumsy in their expression, who are harsh, who are, you know, sounded condemning and so forth. Now, what do you think the solution is? I think what's very typical is people say, yeah, the gospel. Yes, Jesus Christ. That's fine. That's fine. But don't go overboard. That's fine, the gospel, cross, Jesus, fine, but be more moderate. Don't go overboard. Fanatics are people who go too far. No. Anybody who says they're a Christian and is harsh or condemning, their problem is not because they're too fanatically devoted to the gospel, but they're not fanatically devoted enough. Because the real gospel that I just gave you, the only place, the only religion, the only spot that we see a God who is not more fundamentally holy than fundamentally loving— Anybody who understands the real gospel, that turns you into somebody who's both thundering and sweet, somebody who is absolutely gentle, because look look at Jesus, somebody who's a fanatic in the sense of being harsh, you know, the person you're worried about, that person isn't too much like Jesus, they're not enough like Jesus. They see the Jesus who says, I'm Lord of heaven and earth, but they don't see the Jesus who says, a bruised reed I will not break, a low burning candle I will not snuff out in my ministry to you. They see a moralistic or relative, they don't see the whole picture. Anybody who looks harsh, and probably they are, and condemning, and you say they need less of religion, maybe they need less of various religions, but not of Christianity, they need more. And if you think a person who is absolutely sold out for the gospel, if you think a person who is in a sense obsessed with what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross is a boring person, If you think that person is insensitive, is harsh, is going to always make you feel small, you haven't met one who really has. Then, secondly, I said the first thing, if you want to be affected there, you've got to feel what Paul feels. Then secondly, you have to see what Paul sees. Where did he go? The marketplace. What did he feel? Holy jealousy, deep complexity, indignation and compassion. Then what did he see? He saw idols under everything, now. You say, well, of course he saw idols. He was distressed because he saw idols. Heck, you go to Athens today, he'll see idols everywhere. There's Ares, the goddess of power and war. There's Apollos, the, the god of music and, uh, and art. There's Bacchus, the god of fraternities. And you can go to all of these and you say, well, of course, they were out there, there were statues. You know, everybody could see them, there were statues, they were all there. But that's not what the word see is. See, the text could easily have said see. could have used a simple Greek word for see, "blepo," or something, you know, just take a look. But it's the word that Luke uses to describe what Paul was doing there is the word theoreo, the word to theorize, to get underneath. Now, what the gospel will do, and this is actually the key to working out how to be a Christian in the public world, Paul saw that underneath all the art, underneath all the business, underneath all the government underneath all the philosophy were idols. That the real problem with the world is not the bad things, but the good things that have become the best things. And he saw what we should see, and this is how it changes the way we do things, that under every personality are idols, under all psychological problems are idols, under every culture is idols, under all moral problems are idols, under all social problems are idols, under all intellectual problems are idols. First of all, Theoreo means he saw underneath everything. And this is how a Christian does it. Naaman, when he went back and he says, I'm going to go into the temple of Rimon, but I'm not going to sacrifice to Rimon. Somebody says, oh, that's awful. But you see, boy, he was smart. What is the God of Rimon? It was the God of Syria. What What are we talking about here? Here's what's going on. They were worshiping their country. Rimon was the God of Syria. They were worshiping Syria. The reason there's so much bloodthirstiness in the old days was because everybody had their own God. And therefore, they saw themselves as superior to other people. And here's what Naaman said. Naaman says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I'm going to be the prime minister and I'm going to serve my country, but I will not worship my country. Now, it's very typical for Christians to make a big mistake here. Some people know that they've made an idol out of their career. See, it's one thing. Apollos is the god of art, right? Is there anything wrong with art? No. Is there anything wrong with worshiping art? Yes. And how do you worship art? When you say, this is my whole meaning in life. Is there anything wrong with business? Is there anything wrong with competition? Is there anything wrong with a party? But when that's where I get my integration point, where that's where I get my meaning, where that is the thing I live for, and my dear friends, everybody, the gospel shows us that everybody is worshiping something. You don't use the word worship. you're living for something let me put it to you this way everybody has something that if they lose it means they won't even want to live life anymore and whatever that is is the thing you're worshiping now here's what paul did paul said i can get out now and i can recognize and understand how everything changes you're a christian and you suddenly realize now that you're saved by grace and not through your being an artist What are you going to do? You can run away and say, oh my gosh, the art world. Oh my word. Look at all these people. So look at that. Look at all the hubris. Look at the people who get their very definition from being artists. And I want nothing to do with that. So you pull on back. Naaman didn't do that. On the other hand, he didn't just go back and say, well, now I have peace in my private life. He says, I will serve my country, but I will not worship my country. I will serve in my career, but I will not worship my career. If you have to run away from something that used to be an idol, you're actually still enslaved to it. It's not enough just to say I'm free from that, meaning I can't even be involved in it anymore. You've got to say, Jesus Christ is my glory, is my beauty, is my goodness, is my righteousness, is my love, is my meaning. And then what happens? You're going to do things differently than other artists. You're going to dance differently than other dancers. You're going to do business differently than other businessmen and women. Because like Naaman, you're going back into the temple. But you're letting people know, visibly, and in your heart, everything you're doing is for God. God comes first. Dear friends, Paul saw idols under everything. If you want to understand what's going wrong with your field, see the idols. Idols beget idols, beget idols. And Paul said, with the gospel, I could look underneath and I could see everything. Suddenly I figured it out. And I knew how to go about everything differently. I listened to music differently. I respond to my neighbors differently. I do my job differently. Everything's new. Now, I did say the last thing is uh, what Paul did. See where he went, how he felt, what he saw, the idols, and what he did. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. What did Paul actually bring out in the marketplace? First of all, he brought out the objectivity of Christianity. He was willing to get up in the marketplace and say, resurrection. He was willing, back then, to become utterly vulnerable. He based the truth of what he was teaching about Jesus Christ to a historical event. There's that great place where he's talking to Festus and Agrippa. I love it. And Paul says, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and they scoff, and he turns to Festus and says, ask Agrippa. Agrippa, of course, was was Jewish, and he was in Palestine. He'd been there for years. Festus was a pagan from elsewhere. Festus says, come on, resurrection from the dead. What does he do? He turns to Festus to ask Agrippa. He says, he knows about these things, for these things were not done in a corner. And what he means is, Paul says, there's no religion that made itself so vulnerable. No religion that came up and said, the reason you want to know it's true is because hundreds of people saw Jesus Christ physically raised from the dead after he'd been crucified. Paul was willing to get into the marketplace with that. He was willing to come up and do apologetics, they're called. That's the old term. He's willing to come out and say, Christianity isn't true because it changes your life. It changes your life because it's reality. And that's what he said. He got out in the marketplace and was willing to say, come on, ask me why this is true. Other religions don't want to do that. They say, well, you'll find peace within. You know, golly, a dirty sock will give you peace within, I suppose, if you smell it long enough and you think good thoughts. I mean, you can... Uh, you, peace within. People get peace within. He doesn't do that. He lifts up the objectivity in the marketplace. But the other thing he does is he lifts up Jesus subjectively. I love the way he puts it. He was preaching the good news of Jesus, not Jesus Christ, Jesus. How personal. And what Paul wanted was to you to be in love with Jesus and for you to know how much Jesus can be in love with you. Paul was willing to pick that up and pull that up and not just the objective, but the subjective and say, the only way you'll be free from idols in your life is if you're ravished with him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You have to experience them. That's what Christianity is. It's not just an abstract truth or just a mystical experience. It's an experience of truth. Because the truth became a person and now relationship is the way in which the truth comes in. And my whole life has changed and everything else has changed. Do you understand that? Are you the kind of person who feels the way Paul felt? Are you the kind of person who is able to see what Paul saw? Able to do that kind of analysis? Now seeing everybody's trying to save themselves through idols? So the gospel gives you that kind of analysis. You're no longer up there looking and saying, yes, there's the religious and the irreligious, the good and the bad. No, no, no. There's the people who are trying to save themselves through idols and the people who have finally given themselves to Jesus. That's the only two kinds of people in the world. If you're here and you're not sure if you're a Christian, my dear friends, you have already got incredible faith. You couldn't have, you couldn't be living without putting your faith in something. It's not Jesus. That's all. What is it? It's your career or it's your sexual attractiveness or it's partying, it's Bacchus or it's Aries, or it's Aphrodite or it's Apollos or it's something. And all I can tell you is those gods, if you fail them, will never forgive you. And if you get them, they'll never satisfy you. This is the only God who will. Jesus and the resurrection. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now.
0: The following program is called Respectable Sins.
4: Dear listeners, I am Terry, the host of Respectable Sleep. We have been discussing Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins Confronting the Sins We Tolerate. In this book, Jerry explores various, less obvious sins in our lives and considers how to deal with them. These days, there are many self diagnostic tests. In those tests, we get questions like Even after sleeping, are you still tired? When you are tired, are you still able to sleep well? Are you experiencing severe forgetfulness? Or are you unable to concentrate on given tasks? Have you ever taken one of these tests? The author of Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges, introduces a similar self-diagnostic test in the book. I'll read it to you and you can see how many statements apply to you. Number one. When talking with fellow believers, I tend to focus on my own interests. Number two, when I return home after talking with others, I generally do not remember what they are interested in. Number three, in church, at home, or at work, when asked to do something other than my assigned task, I often think, that's not my job. Number four, I know that my family and I need money, but I have little interest whether other believers need financial help. Number five, I am often late for appointments. Number six, I find it difficult to feel grateful. How many of these statements did you answer yes to? Actually, Jerry didn't directly write this test. I made up the questions based on his discussion of one specific sin in the book. Could you guess as to what sin these questions point to? What do you think was his intention behind listing these issues behind the questions? He is addressing the sin of selfishness. That is the subject of our discussion today. Jerry emphasizes how the sin of selfishness is one that we all need to overcome. To the sin of selfishness, he adds, the sin of indifference in which one doesn't care about others. Jerry acknowledges that many of us find it challenging to recognize the selfishness within us. While we readily notice selfishness in others, we struggle to see it within ourselves. To understand the sin of selfishness, we begin by acknowledging that humans are born with a selfish nature. We can observe this selfishness even in children. Children? Does that sound strange? At first we might think, oh, what sin can an innocent child commit? But Jerry says we can easily find the sin of selfishness in children as shown in the following common phrases. We often see people telling young children, Hey, you should share your toys. Hey, don't take that from your friend. Oh no, you should play nice. Anyone who has raised a child would identify with these phrases. Humans are born selfish and we see children crying and throwing tantrums to get what they want. They don't consider the other person's circumstances. How about babies? Would they also behave selfishly? Yes, they do. In Psalm 51, 5, David confesses that he was born in sin and his mother conceived him in iniquity. This means humans are born with a sinful nature. Only those who realize this fact could begin to work on freeing themselves from their sin of selfishness. Jerry explains that as we grow up, we learn and train ourselves to cover up our selfish nature. Many of us do that out of necessity as society doesn't accept it. However, that doesn't mean the selfishness is entirely gone. It is merely hidden. That also means it can resurface any time. Grown-ups don't overtly display their selfishness, but find more subtle ways to satiate their selfishness. Jerry categorizes this selfishness in four types. Being absorbed in one's own interest, caring about one's own time, stinginess concerning others' financial needs, and lacking consideration for others. Even though I'm not listing examples for each, I believe you can easily imagine how these different types could manifest. Maybe a skeptic might challenge and argue against the concept of selfishness as sin. This person might say, Well, selfishness isn't great, but it doesn't have to harm others too badly. Is it then really a sin? Isn't calling selfishness a sin a bit excessive? What about you? Do you agree with the skeptic? Do you feel calling selfishness as sin a bit too far-fetched? To respond to these questions, let's turn to the word of the Bible. The verses in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1-5 through describe the characteristics of people in the last days, the time when God will judge the world. The first characteristic mentioned is that people will love themselves. Let us read verses 1 and 2. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. As a matter of fact, all other sins stem from this self-love. Let us see how this love of self stands in stark contrast to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus condensed God's 613 commandments into just two. Love God and love your neighbor. He then unified these two into one. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John chapter 13 verse 34. Our God is a God of love. Love is not selfish, it's selfless. Our life should not be about loving oneself, but loving God and others. Various forms of selfishness we observe ultimately originate from loving oneself more, considering one's own needs more important, valuing one's time as more precious, and finding satisfaction in speaking out about oneself instead of considering others' feelings. Such inconsiderate behaviors stem from loving only oneself. Selfishness contradicts God's will. It's a sinful act. However, this sin doesn't always manifest outwardly. It affects us from the depth of our inner self. Let's hope for the grace of God to recognize the hidden selfishness within us. Anyone who claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. 1 John chapter 4, verses 20-21 Moving forward, let us remember Jesus' word to love God and love our neighbors. By doing so, we may overcome the sin of self-love. With that, we conclude our discussion today.
5: needed thy hand hath provided grace strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand beside great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning